0: have a Bible, I invite you to turn to the book of Daniel this morning. If you're using a pew Bible, that's page 737, 737. Just uh, in the past month in America, we've had a, a few different things happen. A TV personality, popular among some conservatives, <clears throat> who is a man married to a man, announced that he and his husband would be welcoming two babies in August. They're doing this via one woman's donated eggs and two women surrogates. If you're keeping track, that involves five people. This past month in America, the Assistant Secretary of the HHS, that's the Department of Health and Human Services, services who is a biological man identifying as a woman, was nominated and celebrated by Time Magazine as one of this year's Women of the Year. This past month in America, a biological man identifying as a woman was allowed to compete in the NCAA Women's National Swimming Championship and won the woman's 500-yard race and was celebrated as a champion. This month in America, a woman a woman nominee for the Supreme Court of the United States was asked, can you provide a definition for the word woman? To which she said, no. No, I can't. Not in this context. I'm not a biologist. A British liberal thinker named Theo Hobson has defined a moral revolution in three phases. He says this. That which was repudiated must be celebrated. That which was celebrated must be repudiated. And those who will not celebrate must themselves be repudiated. If that does not perfectly describe the current cultural moment in America, I don't know what does we are living in what some call a post-Christian world. That's not to suggest that America was once a Christian nation necessarily, but rather that Christianity is no longer the primary influence on the worldview in society. There was a time in our national history when those who were not Christians still had a a knowledge of the Bible or a knowledge of God or Christianity. At that time, what one writer suggested that at that time, engaging in in evangelism was more like rearranging the furniture. Meaning we we all held some common beliefs, uh, a belief about God, a belief about maybe who, that there was a Jesus but it's rearranging that furniture. But today, there is little to no commonly held beliefs, so evangelism is no longer rearranging furniture because the furniture does not necessarily even exist. It's a different world. This is a different reality. How we engage is different, especially in evangelism, than it once was. We are living at a time in a nation without shared values or shared beliefs. Now, we may be prone to uh, long for the bygone days of yesteryear, right? Some of us might look back and think about our childhood or think about back when and say, well, it was much better back then. Well, the truth is that we've always had problems. Right? The world has always had problems. America has always had problems. That's not to say there weren't better years than others. Don't disagree. But what we're seeing now is not so much that things are so much worse, but things are so much more approved of. Right? Uh, normalized. The, the, the problems have always been there. Some of the problems we see today are, are as old as the book of Genesis. These aren't new. Deviation is not new, right? What we're seeing that might seem new, at least in our age, is acceptance and normalization. Instead of seeking to correct or grow or change, we now are called to accept, agree, and celebrate disorder as normal. Or as Hobson has said, that which was repudiated must be celebrated. Now we may want to lament where our country is and that may be appropriate at times but our lamenting won't necessarily change the reality right we can we can grieve and some of us should and maybe some of us have but our our, our all our lamenting all our complaining all our concerns won't necessarily change the, the the reality of what we live in so the the better question then is how can we live how can we live christianly how can we live faithfully in the midst of what could be called a secular age? For some of us, uh, this is a new reality, meaning we've, we've not experienced a culture like this. Most of us haven't. Most of us not, have not experienced this kind of moral revolution uh, of a country in, in this kind of direction or this kind of movement. But just because we are not... Uh, aware of that, or because we are ignorant of it, doesn't mean that it has never existed. In fact, as we look at the scriptures, we can see other times in history when God's people were living in foreign lands, exiled from the promised land, as we see in the book of Daniel. Now, we're not Israel. This is Israel who is captive in Babylon. We're the church. But there are several principles laid out. In the book of Daniel, that we can see in the book of Daniel, that are applicable to us. In the book of Daniel, what we find is that Israel had failed at trusting God. In their, in their unbelief, God judged them, and he judged them by having Babylon besiege Jerusalem and carry away some of God's people into captivity. The book of Daniel, chapters 1 through 6, primarily chronicle the experience of four men who, according to one study Bible, exemplify faithful living in exile and provide models of how God's people should live as strangers and exiles in a world that is not their home. And let us just state for the the record, this is not our home. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. America is great, but it is not the promised land. If anything, if anything, America is more like Babylon than it is Jerusalem. This morning, we see, uh, we want to see, we will see what faithfulness looks like in what we'll call a secular age. By secular or secularism, we mean this. Um, Let me just offer you a definition from Albert Moeller. The absence of any binding theistic authority or belief. This is, he goes on, this is a, a psychological, sociological process whereby societies become less theistic. So when we say secular, what we're saying is the idea of moving away from God moving away from religion to irreligion, no longer having this binding theistic, or, or, or theism is God, right, authority or belief that is over us. So the question then is, how can we live in such a context? Well, let's look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, and we'll see our first principle here. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1 In the year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people to Israel, both the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. And they were, to be, they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the king of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belshazzar. Hananiah, Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Verse 8. And David resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. First thing we see here is a resistance to assimilation. If we are to live faithfully in a secular age, we must resist assimilation. See, coming into exile— meant coming into a new culture. These Hebrews were now put into a new culture, a Babylonian culture. And this culture was not content to leave the captives to continue to function in their own ideas and beliefs. And so in order to to prevent that in exile, the Babylonians assigned the captives a new diet, gave them new names, re-educated them in their mythologies, for three years, all in order to assimilate the Hebrews into the Babylonian culture. That was the goal, to, to re-educate, to, to assimilate. This was an attempt to drive out their religious and cultural identities in order to make them more like the Babylonians. But here in verse eight, we see what Daniel says to this in essence. But Daniel resolved, that he would not defile himself with the king's food and with the wine that he drank. This is just a, 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 a window into the mind and heart of, of Daniel. He resolved, or he declared his intent, not to eat the king's food or the drink. It says not to defile himself. Now, this may not have been necessarily because the food was bad or wrong, although it may have been offered to idols. That may have been part of what Daniel was thinking about. But more to the point, Daniel refused. He refused the assimilation in order to retain his distinctive Jewish identity and to retain his dependence on the Lord. Daniel was determined. He had set or he had fixed his heart on what he would or would not do. He was resolved. In 1722, after his conversion, Jonathan Edwards, who we know from history came to be one of the leaders of the revival known as the Great Awakening, began writing a list of resolutions. In, in, in total, he wrote 70 resolutions over a two-year period while he was the ages 18 and 19. He, here are a few of the re- resolutions that he, he wrote. The first, or this one, this was the sixth one. Resolved to live with all my might while I do live. Another. Resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected that, I would, uh, that it would be above an hour before I should hear the last trumpet writes kind of differently than we speak. Last one, I frequently hear persons of old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again. Resolved that I will live just so as I think I shall wish I had done, supposing that I had lived to an old age. Edwards as a young man resolved many things. There's 70 of them, we're not gonna read them all. He resolved or he determined that he was going to make certain choices. He was going to do things or not do things, all to to honor God and not waste his life. And he didn't. And Jonathan Edwards' impact on the church continues today. Daniel had resolved that the culture of Babylon would not conform him. It would not reform him. Here's the the reality for us today. We are constantly being formed. You and I are constantly being formed. We're every day, right? We we, we have um, so many different things coming at us. The question is not if we're being formed. The question is what is forming us? Is it the world or is it the word? I heard recently on a podcast this, this statement, our spiritual formation must be stronger than the world's formation. When we talk about formation, we, we mean influence. We mean development. We mean discipleship, right? In a given week, in a given day, how many opinions are, 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 are you hearing? How many images are you viewing all all the news all the social media all the politics all the music all the pop culture all the worldviews and a hundred other things are are forming us what we give ourselves to is what forms us that's true what we give ourselves to is what forms us What we need to understand is that if we're not proactive in our own spiritual formation, something else will form us. You are being formed. Again, the subject of formation is not in question, but the source is. What is forming you? See, Daniel defied, he rejected, he resisted the formation of the pagan Babylonians by resolving ahead of time that he would not assimilate. He would not go along with their plan. He would not be one of them in that way. He resisted and maintained his identity. We live in a world that is constantly seeking to form and to assimilate us into their worldview. Every day, every day, we must resist. We must resist assimilation if we're gonna live faithfully in this current age. If we are to be faithful, we must resist, but that's not all. Let's look at verses 8 through 16. And Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food, nor the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear the Lord, the king, He's not talking about the Lord God. He's talking about King Nebuchadnezzar, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who, you are, who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. And Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then let our appearance and our, the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this, in this manner and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were, uh, they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the stewards took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Here we see Daniel uh, living out his resolution, right? Resolved not to do it. if, If verses one through eight were the what, right? This is what Daniel, he wasn't gonna do these things. This is how he went about it. He went about it by respecting his authorities. He asked a question, he made a case. The prophet Jeremiah wrote concerning those in exile, he wrote this, he told them to build houses and live in them plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives in your house and your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where you have, where I have sent you in exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now again, this is not a one-to-one, we are not Israel, we are the church, but the, the principle being laid out here is not to remove ourselves from culture and start our own society, it is to live in that culture, or we might say it this way, in a kind of a, a condensed uh, statement you've heard before from some of the things that Jesus said in John 17, to be in the world, but not of the world, right? We live in this world. The, the Bible is not calling us to, to start some sort of counter-culture, counter-state, or counter-country, counter but rather to live in this society, but do it in a certain way. The instructions were not to overthrow the city, but to care for the city, to live in it respectfully. And that's what we see with Daniel. He wasn't antagonistic to those who were over him. He wasn't antagonistic to, to these, these authorities. He was respectful. See, ungodliness of the authorities did not provoke Daniel to be ungodly. That's an important distinction today. We live in a time where the prevailing idea is you fight fire with fire. If someone is ungodly to you, you can be ungodly back to them. That's not how Daniel and his friends acted. And we should say, neither did Jesus, who told us to turn the other cheek, who told us to put down our source, who told us to love our enemies, who told us to do good to those who hate you. Daniel was respectful, but he also was determined. He was proactive. Being respectful doesn't mean that, that, that we were a, a, a doormat. The New Testament though is full of instruction concerning our relationship with authorities, our relationship with our parents, our, our bosses, our church, our, our government, all those sorts of authorities. The Bible has something to say about how we should interact with them. We would do well to consider these principles in contrast to much of what we see in society of how we interact with authority. So it could be said of us that that we respect authority, even though we don't agree with them, even though we're not going to assimilate into what they're saying, in many cases, do we respect them? Respect does not mean complete obedience. That's not what it means. Daniel demonstrated that here. If we look to chapter 6, we could see it there again. What we see in Daniel is how we interact with authority. And the older I get, the more this point becomes clear. We may have a point, we may have the what right, but the how, the how we go about the what really does matter. You might say, well, I'm right. Well, being right is one thing, but going about what you're doing is also important too. You can have the right point and do it in the wrong way. And it it totally, um, Damages, severely damages our witness when we do that. If we are to live faithfully, it's not only about resisting the culture, but living godly while we are in it. Just a couple chapters later in this book, we read another familiar story about three of the men listed in chapter one. You turn to chapter three. And in this narrative, we see two more. Aspects of faithfulness amid secularism. I'll summarize uh, verses 1 through 12 here. The the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, had made for himself, or had made for himself, an image. An image of gold, who's according to chapter 3, verse 1, was 60 cubits uh, high, and its breadth was 6 cubits. Now, most of us don't measure things in cubits too often. So uh, I looked up the measurements. So 90 feet high and nine feet wide. Right? So couldn't really, couldn't really miss this one. 90 feet high, nine basketball ball hoops on top of each other and nine feet wide. It's a, a pretty, pretty significant statue. And he calls all of his officials together. There's a list of them there in, in, in verse two. And they stood before this, this image and they heard this proclamation. Verse four tells us the proclamation. You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. Okay, that's the command. Verse 7, therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound, what did they do? They fell down and worshipped the golden image, right? Threat given, threat obeyed, right? Except not all the people actually did that. Not all the people actually fell down. Verse 8 tells us, therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews, there were some people who noticed that there were a couple of guys, a couple of three guys who didn't actually bow down. And they're not going to let this go. You might remember these guys were, were put into a position back in chapter one because of, of uh, their, their health uh, and because of who they were. They got uh, put into a position and now they're going to get uh, accused, rightfully accused, of not following the king's order. And so they come to the king, these accusers, and they say in verse 12, certain Jews whom you appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. It has been said that if you do not stand for something, you will fall for anything. Here, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are faced with a command, a decree from the king of Babylon, this was the king, right? Who besieged Jerusalem and took a bunch of people as slaves and captive, right? He, this guy doesn't mess around. Like these aren't empty threats. We shouldn't, we shouldn't read them as empty threats. So you could, could believe that the pressure and this threat was actually real. And yet, as we hear this command given and what we know of the scriptures already written that these men would have known about the command to worship a golden image was in direct conflict with what God had already said. The Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to any of them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." As much as we can imagine there was pressure on these three men, we also recognize that there was great clarity too. Why? because God had already spoken. He'd already spoken. God had already said what what to do in, in a situation like this. And these men were proving themselves willing to die instead of break God's law. Hear that. These men were willing to die instead of breaking God's law. They were rejecting any other allegiance than their allegiance to God. When the world around them was literally bowing down to a graven image, they stood. And one could have argued with these men that, that um, culturally they're on the wrong side of history in Babylon, right? The history of Babylon will record them as detractors, people who, who didn't, didn't go along with what, what the direction of the culture was. The culture was moving forward, moving forward with this, this new God. This this new thing to to worship, these people would be shamed. They'd be be thrown into the fire, their life would be over. They'd be on the wrong side of history, but God had already spoken. So regardless of what the culture believed, God had already spoken. as, As a biblical Christian, God has already spoken. So when we come to these, these moments in, in time and in our culture and in our, our, uh, our lifetime where, where we are faced with the decision between what the culture says and what the Bible says, God has already spoken. Will there be pressure? Yes, there'll be pressure, but there is great clarity because God has already spoken. Did I say that yet? The question comes to us, The question comes to you, are you gonna be on the right side of history? You hear this a lot, don't you? About particular issues of morality in our culture. That that we're gonna be labeled as on the wrong side of history. And there can be real social pressure here. Some of you may have experienced it. Just to go along with it, go along to get along. And there are many professing Christians who have done just that as they've capitulated to what, to what the, the culture says, capitulated from what God has said in order to appease what the world is believing at this moment, in order to avoid being on the so-called wrong side of history. I don't want to minimize the pressure that people feel towards that. But if we are able to step back and just say, for what? What's the consequence again? To not be thought well of by a world who hates God, who doesn't believe the Bible anyways. If you don't think this particular issue, whatever it is, is going to offend them, if you think we can kind of capitulate on this one, you don't think there's another one coming down the pike? You all know that this, this deviation doesn't stop here, Right? <laughs> We all realize that, right? Like the LGBT, there's a plus sign there, bro. Like it's going to keep going. This this isn't over. This is not over. So if we think we can capitulate on one of these issues and so to appease the people, it's not how it works. Nebuchadnezzar will not be appeased. The culture will not be appeased. We can't do it. It won't work anyways. And if it would work, for what? For their opinion? For glory now? You would exchange glory now for glory later? God forbid. Since when has it been our ambition to be thought well of by the world? The Apostle Paul writes, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will be that I would not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, as now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to live, for me to live is Christ's, and to die is gain. Now, some of us, in our moments of honesty, would ask ourselves, would I actually be able to stand, though? Right? The king, the guy who, who calls all the shots, like he holds my life in his hands, presumably, humanly speaking. Would I actually be able to stand? Would I actually be willing to risk being thrown into a, a fiery furnace instead of bowing to his statue? Well, the first question we should ask ourselves is, who are we following and who do we fear? All right. That's the first question. Who are you following? Who do you fear? Jesus had something to say about this in Matthew chapter 10, where he writes this, or says this. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him, talking about God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus is saying, get your fears in order. Recognize, yeah, Nebuchadnezzar could kill you, yeah, you could, you could be cast out of society here and now, but that's not your greatest fear. Your greatest fear is, is the one who could destroy both body and soul in hell. He is the one that we please, he is the one that we follow. Like these men, we must resolve now to obey God and his word, to reject all other rival allegiances and to follow Christ alone and faithfully endure, which brings us to the last point in verses 13 through 30, where Nebuchadnezzar hears about this and he's not happy. He's not happy that there's three guys who are defying him. And so he calls for them to be brought to him. And he says to them in verse 14, is it true? Is it true? Is it true that that you're not going to, uh, to worship? that you won't serve my gods and worship the golden image that I have set up? Is it true that you've rejected assimilation? Is it true that, that you are not living as a pagan Babylonian? Now, verse 15, he continues, now if you're ready when you hear the sound, fall down and worship and all will be well, right? I'm gonna give you another chance. I'm gonna give you one more chance. Here it is. Next time you hear it, you bow down we're cool. But if not, if not, the rest of verse 15 says, you shall immediately be cast into the burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answer and said to the king, O king, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Listen to verse 18. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Like Daniel, these men remained faithful in the face of opposition. They didn't rant, they didn't rave. They didn't tell the king how unjust his decree was. They simply spoke the truth and they remained faithful. They entrusted themselves to the Lord, to the Lord who they said was able, knowing that he could, God could, if he chose, he could save them. But verse 18 tells us that they were even willing to accept that he might not do it. Even if he doesn't deliver us from the fiery furnace, we're not bowing down. We will die rather than disobey. They were not living for this world. They were living for the world to come. And there's a lot of scenes in the Bible that I wish I could be, could have been present for. Maybe you can think of some of those yourself. But but, but this one, right? This one would have been unbelievable to see the courage of these three men in the face of a threat, threat of death. Their conviction was more than exemplary. Even when death seemed... eminence. Their confidence was in the Lord. But here's what we need to know. Just because you're confident doesn't mean the threat goes away. They could state their faith all day. Doesn't mean the threat's going away. And look at verse 19. It doesn't. And Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than usual and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. We find out in the next verse that he heated it so hot that when they threw the the three guys in, the guys throwing the guys in died, that the heat from the fiery furnace killed his his men in his army. The commitment to remain attentive to the Lord came with a consequence. The threat was not... uh, was not fake, he wasn't bluffing. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't bluffing, he did it. He threw them into the fire. You've heard it said before, life is choices and choices have consequences, so make the right choices. Well, sometimes that means enduring hardship and suffering for the consequences of doing what's right. A lot of times we talk about that in in respect to disobeying and finding a consequence. But there's also times when we have to make the right choice and it carries a consequence. It carries a consequence of suffering and of hardship, and yet God is always faithful. Look at verse 24, and the king, then King Nebuchadnezzar, was astonished and rose with haste. He looks in there, he casts three guys in there, we already know that, and verse 25 says, but I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then he, he calls out to them, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out here. Nebuchadnezzar recognized something else was happening here. As much as he thought he was in control, apparently he wasn't. They come out, find that there's, there's, not a, there's, there's no burn marks, there's nothing. They, they, they don't even smell like fire. And Nebuchadnezzar answered them, verse 28 blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own God. Nebuchadnezzar recognized that the faith of these men, the conviction of these men, the confession that these men made, they kept. What about that fourth man? It's right for us to stand, understand this fourth man as a physical appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. That means Jesus didn't come until the virgin birth, right? Christmas, that's when Jesus came. But that doesn't mean that's when Jesus became in, as an in existence. That's when he became a man. Jesus has always been, he is eternal. And here we see an example or a, a, a time when he appeared physically. And Nebuchadnezzar could see him. What we find there is that God was present with these men in the fire. God miraculously kept these men from harm. He was faithful. Now his, faithful was, his faithfulness was not just that he kept them from harm, it was that he was with them. We know that God does not always prevent suffering. He does not always prevent affliction. Even Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew that when they said, but if not, clearly there are times where God does not protect. He does not allow the suffering to be avoided. But God does promise that the suffering will not have the final word. Listen to the words of Isaiah chapter 43, verse two. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the river, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. Though this is a promise to Israel once again, we can know that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can. Listen to the words of Romans chapter eight, words that are written to you and to me. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or soil, sword, As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long and are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen to that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego remained attentive to the Lord. God was with them, God cared for them, and God protected them. We are living in a world that is hostile to God. And we can know that God, that same God, who they're hostile to, is with us and cares for us, and that we are not alone. Daniel chapter 1 and 3 Daniel and his friends provide a great example of faithfulness to us which ought to encourage us right when we see other people in a context that uh, a, a context of secularism meaning a context that does not hold God as authoritative their faithfulness ought to encourage our faithfulness but we still may wonder will we be found faithful I have good news for you While David is a great example, there is one who came after David, who is greater than David. One who lived perfectly faithful, a perfectly faithful life, and through whom we can live faithfully. You see, Jesus is the true and better Daniel, whose faithfulness was not only exemplary, but it is the means of eternal salvation to all who would repent and believe. Unlike Daniel and his friends, Jesus lived faithfully, but actually died, paying the penalty of our sins in his death, so that by his faithfulness, we might be saved to walk faithfully in the newness of life, empowered by his spirit. So you and I too can remain faithful even in this age because Christ did it, now he empowers you and me to do it through the spirit that lives within us. Now, if you don't know Christ, then you don't have the Spirit of God indwelling you. But the Scriptures, on the of Scripture, you can, if you would repent and believe. You see, the world around us may not change. It may not change. It may not get better. But by the grace of God, we can remain faithful in the world around us for the glory of God and for the good of others. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We're thankful for the testimony of these men who believed you and believed your word, believed what you had already said is more authoritative than anything that anyone else would say. Any new ideas, any idea of of updating what God has said, they rejected it. God, may we do the same. May we resist the formation of this world. May we do it in a respectful way. God, would you help us, help us to reject all other allegiances in this, in this life We commit ourselves fully to you, remaining attentive, remaining faithful to you our whole life. We know we are in need. We know we need help. It cannot be by ourselves. And we're so thankful that you're with us. Like you were with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God, through your spirit, you're with us now. So we pray for continued enablement to follow you and to obey you. Would you help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.